The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Well, hello and welcome to the Connected Table Live. We're your hosts, Melanie Young and David Ransom, your insatiably curious culinary couple. Each week, we bring you the dynamic people who work front and center and behind the scenes in food, wine, spirits, and hospitality. Ours is a delicious life, and we love sharing it with all of you listeners. You can follow us anytime and hear all our shows on iHeart.com and the free iHeart app. And, of course, you're listening to W4CY Radio Live today, which is March 29th. David and I just got back, as many of you know, from a wonderful trip to Napa Valley. And we met with so many amazing vintners who have really astoundingly wonderful stories to share. Uh, We are doing a follow-up show today uh, with two vintners whom we met when we were out uh, in Napa Valley, each with really interesting stories. They um, both are kind of career changers. That's one thing that is interesting about them. They are also owner winemakers of their wineries. Each of their wineries is off the beaten track. You've got to drive a ways to find them. Uh, and when you go, the, the, the things that, that really stuck out when we went to each of them was, first of all, that is off the beaten track. You don't go up to drive up to a palatial <laughs> palace like some of the wineries in Napa Valley. Um, it's really more of a farm feel. You feel and smell the dirt. You really sense the air and the land. And there are a lot of animals. Animals were a, a common thread with both of them. So it's, it's really a kind of a more rustic, exciting feel to Napa Valley that we just love about winemaking. And, uh, right? And, and for me, it's, it's, it kind of brings it full circle because it's really the, op, the, the two wineries that we have on today and the two folks that we have on to talk about uh, their version of Napa today are really the opposite end of the spectrum from the wonderful people that we had on last week, the Trefethans and the Phelps, uh, who are you know, legendary in the business in, in their own right, but also have much bigger plots of land and much bigger wineries and, and, and uh, really are, are some of the iconic wineries in Napa Valley. These folks um, come at it from a love of growing grapes and a love of making wine, but I think really a love of growing grapes first uh, right. because, they're, because they, they don't have vineyard after vineyard in, uh, to pull from and whatnot, so they really take care, uh, not that the, the Trefethans and Phelps don't, but oh, really, course, take care right. in, really take care in what they do and how they, how they cherish the land that they grow their grapes on and whatnot, well, th- and, and, and they make small amounts of wine. Well, also, with the Trevethans and the Phelps, we were talking about multi-generational families whose mission right now is to preserve phenomenal family legacies and and the quality of what they're doing. Um, Both of our vintners today came at it from different angles. Um, And we'll start with our first guest. I'm really honored to introduce her because she's, um, and you know this is my thing, a woman vintner. Um, And 
this is what's really interesting. Julie Johnson, who is the owner and winemaker at Trace Saboras, which means three flavors or free taste in Spanish, she actually was in um, a public health care nurse. She really was in, in, in health care for a number of years before turning to wine. So, you know, I'm all about health and wine. And she um, it was a mother and decided to uh, change her profession and uh, ended up... Originally, with um, her first husband and, and partner, Larry Turley, she founded Frog Sleep Winery in 1981, which is just about when um, I, was, uh, graduate, uh, I was graduating uh, college. And she uh, really built that up. And then um, also in 1990, this is great, founded, uh, co-founded Women for Wine Sense, which is a really amazing national organization to support women in wine. Before, it really, Women in Wine really took off. Today, she runs Trace Saboris with um, her current husband, John, and her son, Rory. And we met Miguel, who runs the estate. And they gave us a, a wonderful tour. We didn't meet Julie, but we met everybody else. Julie is a, and in addition to having a certified organic winery, she's also got gardens. Um, she's a passionate gardener. And this is a estate, when you go in, it's really a farmstead. You see beautifully tended vines. You see giant old oak trees. You see the three gold, I think it's two or three golden labs. I can't count. A little sheep three. bounded <laughs> over. Three. A little sheep bounded over to say hello. There's pomegranate trees in Meyer Lemons. This screams fabulous farm. So Julie Johnson, we want to welcome you to the Connected Table Live. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, we've had 62 inches of rain this year, so I don't know if it rained when you were at the ranch, but we're enjoying all of the after effects. The cover crops are, gosh, almost thigh high, and the soil has lots of water stored up in it, and the roses are starting to bloom, and so we're just ready, and, you know, the most important thing of the entire year is happening right now, and that is bud break. So the whole cycle is happening again, and it's it's just um, it's a wonderful wonderful day to be in the valley. What can I say? <laughs> it, it's, it it really is an exciting time of year to be there, and and we were out there last year when the first floods were literally coming last out of the week, right. and we, last and, week. And when we were driving. Mm-hmm driving up up and down the roads uh, we kept looking into the vineyards and saying oh well this one's this one's popped this one hasn't things like that it was fun because wherever you went sometimes buds had broken and sometimes they had not but but and they had it yours as well so it was really nice to see that happening and um with 62 inches of rain julie obviously we we um we were told by many people that the drought is officially over in napa is that is that something that you feel as well well, actually, it's interesting. No, it's not officially over. I mean, I think the snowpack, the estimate in the snowpack would be, for at least for the Central Valley, would be that we'd have to have four or five years like this to replenish the mm-hmm. uh, subterranean aquifers. Um, I don't think we're quite as bad off as some areas um, are uh, in the state. But, no, you know, I think we're all working really hard to, and in my capacity as the chair of the Napa Napa Valley Vintners Advisory Board for Napa Green, which is a, a mm-hmm. huge, very important prob- program that we do here in the valley. Um, you know, it's it, all farmers, I think, are wise farmers or wiser farmers. Every day we move forward with this process. 
you know, this is long-term, long-term gardening. You know, these are, I have vines in the, in the ground that have been in the ground since 1971. It, mm-hmm. It's wise farming to keep those grapes growing as long as we can, and it's wise farming to do everything we can to sequester water, um, hold water safely in the ground. Um, as you know, we dry farm, so that's especially important for mm-hmm. us. But um, to, pre- to take measures to prevent erosion and to uh, prevent any runoff um, into our Napa River or the estuary, where, you know, it used to be a joke that maybe you would ever you would see a steelhead trout, but now you can actually see them. So, um, you know, we need... We need all the water we can get in California, that's for sure. Absolutely. Now, Julie, for our listeners who, you know, can't see and we're trying to paint a picture, let's talk about, uh, first of all, how you came to um, take over Trace Boris and, and a little history of it and, and where it's located. Well, yeah, it's, it's in a beautiful place. Um, if people are driving, people who have been to the Napa Valley are mm-hmm. coming up the, the Highway 29, which runs north and south along the west side of the Napa Valley. And remember how short the Napa Valley, I don't know when the first time you came here, if you were amazed, Napa only grows 4% of California's grapes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think we make a lot of noise, but we're really a pretty tiny place, and so is the place where I live. It's the Rutherford Appalachian. So it's just where you turn west, just where the railroad tracks um, cross the highway. I can hear people out there saying, I know where that is. And you go about a mile and a half west, mm-hmm. and um, then you get to our ranch. So you go south and west and south and west. And we're 35 acres, of which about 12 are planted to grapes and pomegranates and olives and Meyer mm-hmm. lemons and the outbuildings and the winery. And um, so we have been here. Grapes are planted in 71, which makes them pretty old for now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then for mm-hmm. now and in Rutherford. I mean, we are, my son Rory keeps saying, Mom, you really are a Zinfandel estate mm-hmm. that also grows a really great Rutherford Cabernet. And I'm like, okay, I can deal with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> not everybody in Napa has to lead, not everybody in Rutherford has to lead with Cabernet Sauvignon, I guess. But, but anyway, so we're here and grow older Zinfandel and older Cabernet and um, have been doing so since we moved to the property in 1987. So this was the first property that we bought, actually purchased, for Frog's Leap. And it continued to be one of Frog's Leap's um, best vineyards um, through 2001. And by 2001, having started a small Zinfandel project in 99 to start Trace Saboris, I then, by 2001, I was not only making wine, but I was using all the grapes from the property. So today, if you came, you would see Cabernet Sauvignon, mm-hmm. uh, Zinfandel, a little bit of Petite Syrah, a little mm-hmm. bit of Petite Verdot, and lots of, lots and lots of plants. We plant, um, oh, pomegranates, for example, for several mm-hmm. reasons. One, the flowers bring in uh, beneficial insects like bees that make us honey now. Um, They bring in really wonderful birds, like hummingbirds, that consume 40% of their diet from insects, which is superb natural control for a vineyard like ours, an organic vineyard like ours. Mm -hmm. And really importantly, we get the fruit of the harvest 
just after the grape harvest is finished every year. And every year, and you guys are invited, uh, every year this year it's going to be October 28th, we have um, an annual pomegranate and paella party. Ooh, that sounds fabulous. And we drink pomegranate So anyway, that's, so that's what you would see. I think if you came right now, you'd see a lot of vines just starting to grow in a beautiful place mm-hmm. to the west. Highway 29, and everybody's invited. <laughs> you know, and 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 if you can, everybody who's listening should go to Trace of Boris, but call for us, of course, because it's not a very big place. But however, it's really one of the most, I think, special places in the Napa Valley. It's 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 in a tiny little corner, and and it's and it and it reminds me of Eden almost in a way because it's so it's so inviting to go there and and and. You feel so relaxed when you drive onto the property, park your car, and walk through the trees, and and uh, and and enjoy and enjoy the view because you're ac- you're actually elevated up a little bit off the off the mm-hmm. valley floor. So there's a beautiful view in front of you as well as you look back out into the valley from the side, and uh, and we just loved it. And well, thank you. You know, a lot of times people will say, "Well, and so when we come, how close to the vineyard can we actually get?" And we say, "Well." <laughs> You would have to work kind of hard to be away from the vineyard. You can be in the vineyard. <laughs> my, favorite right. thing is to, my favorite thing is to give people a glass of Cabernet while we're standing in the very Cabernet vineyard that it came from. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like, I don't know, if you can put a smile on people's face with a... So three tastes, right? The, the taste of the terroir, there you are. Mm-hmm. Um, the taste of the vine, in that case, Cabernet Sauvignon the taste of the good company around you. So we do mm-hmm. a lot of toasting around here, and it's, it's, it's fun. Um, I have had a chance to have a few careers, and I tell my kids, you're going to have many careers. I'm just really happy that you're starting out in viticulture, in organic growing, in, with that kind of soulful response to the soil. And um, we're, we're really proud of kind of starting, hopefully, uh, what will be some places, you know, between Trace Boris and Frog's Leap and my son's wine, Calder. Um, well, I think we're all hoping we can, when you're in wine, it's a long-term process, and we're hoping that we'll be around for a while. Well, we hope so, too, because uh, we were enchanted. Just, uh, you know, just another experiential thing for those listening. Often you go to wineries and you go into the tasting room, the big tasting room, and sometimes you have to fill out forms and la, 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 la. Our first taste, uh, Julie, when we came out, the first thing we were offered was, quote, morning wine, which I will never drink orange juice again. If I can just have your your Trace Boris Ingrid and Julia Rosé. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that first, that wine first, and then talk about the wines, because I find that story delightful because it harkens back to your passion for gardening as well. Well, yes, it, Ingrid and Julia, it's named after my two favorite roses, Ingrid Bergman and Julia Child. When I found out that there was a rose named Julia Child, I just, of course, you had to, of course I had to get it. You know, it's right. like I have the Lucille Ball rose as well because that's all about, you know, sorting the, the sorting tables and sorting chocolates and all of that, and that was just, mm-hmm. and stomping on grapes, so that's hysterical. But, so it's mm-hmm. kind of funny and, and punish on me, I guess, to, to, uh, to do that. But it truly, um, I think the Ingrid Bergman comes in because it's a beautiful, so I say it's a beautiful wine with a spicy accent, and it, it truly is. It's made mm-hmm. as a dedicated rosé. So 
everybody realizes even red, all but one, Alicante Boucher, all but one of the red grape varieties that I know of have red skin but mm-hmm. white pulp. Yep. So all we do is pick the grapes for Zinfandel and Petite Syrah about a month and a half before we pick them for the red harvest and bring them into the winery, put them in the press, and almost immediately separate the white juice from the dark skins. And we get this kind of pale salmon color that has a little bit of the zippiness and even raciness of the, the grape varietals, but it has this wonderful, do you know, Alp, you, you guys cook a lot, alpine strawberry, you know, the foise de bois, I mm-hmm. guess I get it's very suggestive of all sorts of things to pair it with automatically. It's very dry, too, so that would be my style. No one it was totally it. our style. I thought it was magical, and honestly, if, if I could wear it as blush, I would. I thought the color, it was, it, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a beautiful pale rosé, which I love, but it had a, like, a little, almost an essence of golden feel to it as well. I was just struck by it. Really, really great. Now, let's talk about the, the red wines, because we, we did get to stand at the, at the vineyard drinking the Cabernet <laughs> and well, some Fintel. Well, I, I, oh, yeah. I, I love the fact that we were literally standing in the, <laughs> among the Zinfandel vines drinking yes, the Zinfandel, drinking Zinfandel that was made from them. Yeah. <laughs> Always one well, of my favorite experiences. Well, thank you. They're older vines, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think... One thing, I, because I do come from cooking, I do come from nutrition, I do come mm-hmm. from the idea that, that everything needs to be in balance. Women for Wine Sense is about being in balance, drinking mm-hmm. in moderation, working and enjoying wine in, in, in a lifestyle context. That's me for this vineyard as well. So Zinfandel for me is just evokes what is the style and what the vines, these older vines, want to do. And what they want to do is produce a very elegant wine that um, we open up the vines to give lots of morning easterly sun to the, the actual clusters of fruit. And then we close down from keep the vine cool, the clusters cool in the late afternoon with the canopy of the, of the leaves. And the reason for that is we really don't want an uber-ripe um, higher alcohols in. We love the graceful thing. You really want Zinfandel to feel and to taste like you're putting a fresh boysenberry right in front of your face in the warm sun, but you really don't want it. You want it to be a boysenberry, not a raisin of a boysenberry, and that's mm-hmm. the idea right. behind Zin. So with a little spark and a little verve, a little pepper behind it, that's what this vineyard does. So it's my job as a winemaker just not to muck it up. You know, I want it the grapes are 100%. I ferment all of my um, all of my red wines about 50% with wild yeast, in mm-hmm. it, and I make them very old-fashioned way in small open-top bins that hold about two and a half barrels or about 60 to 70 cases worth of wine. And at that point, um, we um, you know we just kind of let Mother Nature take over. So. So Zin has been grown here since 1971, and um, I'm very proud that it. Now there's a little bit of Cabernet, just 250 cases, uh, to accompany it. But I would say the Cabernet also is kind of has its own individuality. Not only being here on the Rutherford bench, but being um, being a very svelte and and satin wine. 
um, not trying to be, you know, something that's just just up and around and out there and trying to, you know, be a kickboxer of a wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I that? love that word, kickboxer. That's better than bitch slap, which is what I was using a couple of weeks ago when I came out and tasted some of the 2013s that are still kind of forceful in your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, wine does that, and does. you know, one of the things I learned back in my my microbiology days, wines and and actually organic chemistry as well. Mm-hmm. You know, wine is dynamic in the bottle. That's mm-hmm. why aging in the bottle is great. So our goal here, I think, um, is to make a graceful wine. Some say mm-hmm. a feminine wine, but I think that's you know, who knows where that is. But the idea is. Make a wine that's graceful and lovely in its youth, and it has a really good opportunity to be very pretty and appealing um, Mm -hmm. in its later years as well. So Mm -hmm. I'd say that's a big goal. So a feminine, graceful wine that ages well, how perfect is that? (laughs) David, I think you have a question. (laughs) Well, Juliet, you know, I want to kind of go back to something we we touched on earlier and and talk about Napa Green. But I want to preface it by saying that I did a little research on you. And one of the articles that um, was written about you was uh, the, the writer said this. It is completely evident that she is passionate and caring about her land and the wines that she produces. On that note. Um, let's talk about Napa Green because that's obviously one of your big passions as well. And while we were there talking with uh, Rory and John and Miguel last week, uh, that was really most of our conversation was talking about uh, your farming techniques and, and why it's important to, to do it the way you do it for you. Uh, so let's talk about Napa Green and, and your dedication to it. Well, no, great. And Napa Green is a program that started, gosh, I think even over 10 years ago. And the goal of um, the region, it's Napa Valley Vintners, but Napa Valley Growers, um, all of the different Appalachian groups. Um, it, Napa is a small, I'll preface this by saying Napa is a real small place, and I could go to any neighbor tomorrow, today, and say, you know, hey, teach me about this. Show me your best practices for the land or for your winery or for social justice issues, um, and they would share with me. And the, the vitality and the purpose of Napa Green is to continue that, that community sharing, specifically to get us through and beyond some of the regulatory issues that we all are having to deal with and mm-hmm. that we recognize are very important to deal with. Um, I think the, the key thing for all of us is to work together and develop those, not only develop those, those best ideas, but um, to work with each other to help put them into, into process. And, you know, we all want to increase the diversity and the natural health of our soils. We all want to reduce their erosion and the, and the runoff to our water, in our watershed. Um, we all want people to come here and feel like um, they're walking in, in natural land, you know, that mm-hmm. what's here is meant to be here. Um, so Napa Green came up, so it augments other programs. You know, as you know, I'm a certified organic farmer, mm-hmm. which is a process where I get a third-party audit every year. I develop a farm plan. I mm-hmm. work through that. Every input that I make to the vineyard is scrutinized. So um, I would say that perhaps on the spectrum of understanding what's going on with, with farming, um, organic biodynamic is probably moving a little bit uh, even further along the progressive side of things, but mm-hmm. um, Napa Green, I think, goes a long way towards also 
establishing some very strong guidelines um, that you must adhere to to be to be mm-hmm. in compliance with Napa Green for erosion control, for property management, for road management. You know, runoff from roads and um, mm-hmm. um, front areas of vineyards and side yards and so on is can be without mitigation a huge problem. So we all are working mm-hmm. hard on that. And there is a Napa Valley Winery, Green Winery certification as well, that really mm-hmm. takes into account um, not only an economic justice, in other words, we have to be able to make wa- money as small business people, but social justice issues, recycling, um, reusing, importantly in terms of land and uh, vineyard cert- and winery certification, the use of water and reducing the use of water and the wise use of water. So. We're all about sanitation. We're all about cleaning barrels. We're all about, you know, utilizing natural resources, but we have to use them wisely. And we all know that working back to the land, we all know that working with wisely with the land really helps um, with, for example, small example, carbon sequestration, big issue. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, but it all gets us. You know, it's not just so symbolic. It has, this is a program that has teeth, and it's also a program that gets us all further down the line for being responsible and being wise and being efficient and being economically viable. Um, you plant, plant a vineyard, you want it. You know, it's a lot of resources. You want it to last for 25 years plus. So it's mm-hmm. helpful in Napa for us all to be working together as a community, as Appalachian groups, as growers, as vintners, to get us further along that line. Yes, we you know, we, we love the inputs and we'd love people to recognize that we're really working on, we've identified these things that we want to do together and we're working in concert to make that happen. Does that, does that help? I mean, so much yeah. happens, you know, so much of green stuff, it's like, is this just another greenwashing program? Right. And I would, I for one would not be lending any weight at all um, to something that was just simply a checkoff program or, you know, something that didn't really have some consequence. That's, that's really, it's, it, that's really an important thing, I think. Well, you're, you're completely right. And, you know, there's a, there are a lot of people jumping on the sustainability <laughs> bandwagon and the, and, right. and, and the green bandwagon and not really putting a lot of emphasis behind it in actual practice. Um, and this is one program that has now been around for 10 years and, mm-hmm. and, is, and is really showing progress. So, so congratulations on that. Well, Julie, we, we um, want to thank you for joining us today. I think that's a really great way to, to summarize and, 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 you know, end our conversation with you today because the Napa Green Program is so important. And it's, you know, I think, you know, what we noticed when we were out in Napa and talking to all the vintners that we visited with, that this is a, it is a community, first of all. It is a small um, appellation, really, and one you can go, you know, north to south in a day and but do spend several days everybody listening because you need it to really properly visit napa valley <laughs> and 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 because there's many different avas within napa valley 16 approved to be exact but what we notice is everybody is working toward the same commitment uh and 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 preservation 
is truly one of the biggest names and, and words that we sensed out there, whether you were preserving a family legacy that began in the 70s or 80s, uh, or preserving the land that you uh, currently have, but preserving it for the future of the health of the land, the future health of the vineyards, and the future health of the families who you're going to be passing the wineries down to for generations to come. And it's all kind of uh, underscored in this Napa Green commitment to really take a long-term approach to managing the land and the viticulture. Well, thank you. You've clearly got it. Here's my offer um, mm-hmm. to people, to your listeners. Um, come visit our family. Mm-hmm. We'd love to welcome you to our home. And you can do that by, uh, by contacting us in advance, not to be, not to be smug and, and uh, stuffy about it, but just because we are a small place. But and, we truly, yeah. and, um, and we folks, truly you really love to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> folks, you really will be visiting their home because actually, if I remember correctly, you all lived in the tasting room for a while. We, uh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tiny little tasting room, yeah. So, yes, appointments. It is by appointment, um, and you can go um, uh, to, I think your website's still under construction, but NapaVintners.com, uh, which is the Napa Valley Vintners website. You can uh, log in, Trace Saboris, T-R-E-S-S-A-B-O-R-E-S, if you don't speak Spanish, <laughs> three tastes. And um, you can call uh, also to get an appointment, but we encourage it. Um, it's a wonderful visit. And drive slowly because there's animals. There's wonderful dogs everywhere. Just drive slowly when you go down the highways there. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and we look forward to welcoming you all back. Thank you, Julia. Thank you very much. A pleasure having you on our show. Folks, you're listening to Connected Table Live with Melanie Young and David Ransom. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Barry Waite from Tambor Bay Vineyards. We're your hosts, Melanie Young and David Ransom, your insatiably curious culinary couple. You're listening to W4CY Radio, and we want to remind everybody that all our shows are permanently on iHeart.com and the free iHeart app. Again, thanks to the Napa Valley Vintners Association, David and I uh, had a wonderful visit last week to Napa Valley. Differing, we visited several different AVAs of the 16 in the um, Napa Valley area and met with many winemakers. Today, we're doing a follow-up show, and um, we ours is like an animal-themed show because what really struck us about the Vintners um, that we have on today is they have ranches more uh, instead of 
baronial estate, and they have a commitment to animals as well as the land, and they, may, of course, make terrific wines. So we're going to introduce um, our next guest. This is very cool. Um, Barry Waite, like our first guest, Julie Johnson, is a career changer. He was in technology, uh, and, and and he actually has another career as a, as a top-ranked equestrian with his wife, Jennifer, and he... Uh, is the owner vintner of Tambor Bay, T-A-M-B-E-R-B-E-Y Vineyards in Calistoga, a very cool little town. Um, Barry comes into the wine world in a very different approach and way, which he will discuss with us. What's neat about the winery, it is a beautiful ranch. It was formerly called, I think, Sundance Ranch, right, Barry? That is correct. Right, and I'm going to ask you if Robert Reffer used to own it in a minute, but but he has these stables of gorgeous Arabian horses, and these are long-haul Arabian horses, which is a very specific endurance. They're endurance horses. They run like 50 to 100 miles, and Barry and Jennifer go to horse races all the time, and they have all these ribbons and whatnot. So you've got a very cool combination of a winery and these stables. Yeah, and a working horse farm, world-class. So, Barry Waite, welcome to the Connected Table Live. Melanie, it's nice to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely. So, um, let's kind of share your first story, your little wine journey, how you came into becoming a vintner after working for a another kind of fruit <laughs> in, yeah, in no your kidding. earlier days. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, uh, my journey into the wine business started at a very young age. My parents started vacationing in Napa in the late 50s. turned out to be our summer home that we lived in San Francisco. Uh, we'd spend a good month or two uh, almost every summer as I grew up in the Napa Valley. So that was my uh, uh, entree into at least the wine country living. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't say I was drinking much wine at the age of four, five, and six, but I certainly got exposed to the area. Um, but I did out of college, uh, both started enjoying fine wines, but took a turn, as you say, to another fruit company. I worked at uh, Apple <laughs> Computer in the early days for about 14 years. And uh, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, I was uh, led by probably one of the most dynamic gentlemen on the planet who uh, actually thought he could change the world. And I actually, you know, we all know now he did. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, did a couple other high-tech jobs. But always uh, yearned to be back into uh, wine country. Uh, it's a place I visited frequently uh, through my high-tech days, both vacationing, uh, doing off-sites, things of that nature up in the wine country. So in the late 90s, um, having uh, been somewhat successful into the tech business, I decided to uh, change careers, and uh, not just a career, but change lifestyles. So I switched valleys. I went from Silicon Valley into Napa Valley, and uh, it's been uh, a blessing uh, to be there ever since. Um, so we started our business in 1999. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started as a grower. My primary existence was uh, selling fruit to other wineries, with the likes of Behringer and Franciscan and Domaine Chandon. Uh, slowly, we built the brand of Tambor Bay. And uh, my first vintage in 2001 was 150 cases. Uh, today, we make 30,000 cases, of which uh, Tambor Bay brand is about a little less than half of that. It's now done at a winery, which you uh, denoted as on a horse ranch, which we call Sundance Ranch. Actually, uh, a name was given to it by the original owner, uh, which was not Robert Redford. Okay. Um, but it's up, uh, up in Calistoga near Chateau Montalena, so we have uh, fantastic neighbors, uh, legacy, mm-hmm. and uh, we're trying to build our own there. So that's my quick story of what got me there. It, it, it is a great story. It is a great story. David, I think you're off. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, um, t- can you hear us, Barry? I can hear you. Uh, I, didn't, yeah. I don't hear David, though. Yeah, David audios. We're just anyway. He's fixing it. But it, what David was saying okay, it is a good. great story, and um, <laughs> and we were really excited to be there. And what what we were taking about you, you? Let's talk about first of all. Um, you know, you tell us a little bit about the history. Let's talk about um, because you started as a grape grower, so you were supplying grapes to many other wineries, and then you decided to create your own um, wine. What was your vision and your focus? And tell us about your wines. Well, it's a, a project that, uh, uh, from the winemaking perspective, that started uh, with just a uh, uh, a passion of drinking really great wine and having a vineyard in front of your house. Um, and that was, I did, that was my dream to get there. But once I was there, it took me about six months to figure out that, you know what, I can take this one step further. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we live and our vineyards are in the Yonkville, Oakville area, which is dead center in Napa Valley, which, mm-hmm. you know, can be argued as one of the, uh, greatest, uh, Cabernet growing regions, uh, certainly in the United States, if not the world. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I felt, uh, a, a little bit cheapish in that we were selling all this great fruit to other wineries. They're making great wines. Love that. Uh, but we wanted to make a little bit of our own. And one of the properties that I did purchase had some bare land in the Oakville area. So we planted three acres, and that was the uh, the beginning of us uh, wanting to do a couple uh, varietals uh, of Bordeaux. Uh, so Cabernet and uh, Merlot were our first entrees into that. And it's a, 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 a project that just kept growing. Uh, every year we kind of step back and says, did we enjoy it? Are we being successful? Are we making great wine? Things of that nature. And so let's increase it. So um, uh, every year uh, we went from 150 cases to 300 to 600 and so forth. We also started expanding our varietal selections. Um, mm-hmm. We now make 15 different wines, mm-hmm. all the way, mostly concentrating on Burgundies and Bordeaux. So Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc came into the portfolio. And just recently we started purchasing fruit from Sonoma uh, mm-hmm. for Pinot Noir. And uh, we now have uh, two Pinots. Uh, available and two others in development. Um, so uh, we keep expanding. I have to tell you, I'm a former product marketing person from the high-tech industry. Mm-hmm. And product marketing people like to make stuff. And so <laughs> this industry of being in the wine and uh, making wine is perfect for what uh, I learned back in my early days. So uh, given the opportunity of uh, uh, taking fruit from another vineyard, I'm more interested in making a new wine out of it than just taking that fruit and putting it into something that's already existing. And then we get to figure out how to product market that. So it's it's a lot of fun. Well, Barry, you know, one of the things I I love most about your story is that you, you, when you bought Sundance Ranch, you realized very early on that the last thing you really should have done was start planting grapes at that vineyard site because it's in the middle of Calistoga and, and there's mm-hmm. a and there's hot springs underneath it and there's all kinds of sulfur mm-hmm. in the land and whatnot. And you realized right. very early that, that if you were going to do it, you were still going to have to source your fruit from the vineyards that you own somewhere else and not try to reinvent the wheel and do an estate-made product from Sundance Ranch. So, mm-hmm. so um, And obviously your wines speak to the fact that, that you really want to make sure that your fruit is top-notch and whatnot from that. Yeah, so you know, congrats, congratulations on that. Well, thank you, David. That's a really great point. Uh, you know, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, or I should say maybe at the beginning of the day, making great wine starts with soils and mm-hmm. weather. And when you talk about mm-hmm. Napa Valley, it has some of the, the best soils on the planet. And I think that's why Napa is what it is and it'll carry through forever in that respect. But there's some spots within Napa Valley that aren't the greatest for growing. Mm-hmm. Right. right next to our winery is the uh, Calistoga Geyser. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, as attractive as that is and as, as fun it is to watch, uh, the soil system underneath that, and specifically the water system, is not conducive to making great wines. So um, we found that out when we started drinking, uh, drilling for wells and finding that just literally 100 feet down, uh, the water was um, substandard for what we wanted to do. It was also very hot mm-hmm. water, uh, turning mm-hmm. out to be about 150 degrees. And so, uh, so we grow grass for our horses on our property there. We don't uh, grow anything else for production. Well, I think that's a really great point. And for those who've not visited Calasoga, it's a charming little town. And, and you really do, you're driving and you see the geysers, you know, from the highway. It's kind of interesting. Something that um, we thought, I, I particularly thought was fun is, is some of the, you, you said you had 15 different wines now. Um, and you have uh, your vineyard series and then you have your signature collections. And when when you look at them and, and the names of them, they, they almost sound like Italian grapes, Sabino, Tovero, Vermejo. I particularly liked Vermejo because it sounded like a, a, a mutant Spanish grape. And, <laughs> and, 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 and what they really are, tell everybody. I will. Um, and this is, again, my product marketing side coming out onto mm-hmm. me. So uh, when we have all these varietals, uh, we make a number of them in 100% fashion. So we do 100% Cabernet, mm-hmm. 100% Merlot, so forth and so on. But we also uh, started making uh, blends back in mm-hmm. 2007. And uh, because they're blends, um, because of labeling laws, you have a choice of calling it either red wine or you can make up a name right. and so forth <laughs> and so on. So we did. So we now make four different blends. And what we mm-hmm. chose to do was to name them after color coat patterns of horses. <laughs> and what these are is that most people are familiar with paint horses and pintos and, and uh, so forth. But there's over 100 different names. And so we chose the names, um, if I can go through them, Rabicano, Tavero, Sabino, and a new wine coming out uh, in April called Vermejo. And these are all <laughs> variations of colorings of horses. And so in my goofy world, if that's the blending of horsehair colors, well, in the wine world, this is the blending of wines. So we went out and trademarked those names, and they are now the names of all our different blends. So well, it's kind of act- fun. Yeah, we, yeah. And, and, and while we were there, we actually got to try your 2014 Sabino, uh, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful, beautiful red blend of Cabernet Franc Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, but it's mm-hmm. and, 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 and really kind of Cab Franc focused, um, which was the majority, I believe, grape in it. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. and you, but you only make you know, 100, 200 cases of it, so it's pretty small production and really kind of a labor of love for you to do, to mm-hmm. do, it, to do those wines as well. Um, and that, that's the nature of our signature uh, collection is all yep. those wines are 500 cases or less, really artisan-made wines and, and very unique in their style. Um, so that, that is that character. So those are all available at Tambor Bay uh, through the Tasting Room and through your wine club, correct? Your equine that club, is, correct. is that it? Yeah, equine club. Well, yeah, we, we, so there you go again. There's a name. Uh, so our club is called Equine, and it's W-I-N-E at the end. Mm-hmm. So it has that kind of horse naming connection. But uh, that is our club, and uh, we give first priority to our signature wines to our club members. And I got to just say right here, having been out there, I, I, I will be the first to say I've never joined a wine club, but having now been to Napa Valley twice in two months, I'm inclined to tell everybody that it is worth joining a wine club, particularly if you really want to know and learn and become one with the club. It is so worth it because you get access to uh, releases and special wines and, and special offers that you may not get elsewhere. So I think it's a great way to become involved and learn more about wines, no matter where you are, but especially we notice with the Napa Valley wines. 
Uh, that, that's correct. And the way we've positioned our club is exactly that. You get access to wines that most people don't get because mm-hmm. we only make 100, 200 cases of these. Right. And, uh, so, and it also allows people, I think, when they join a club, be it Tambor Bay or other wineries, it allows them to take that experience home with them and enjoy mm-hmm. that. And every time a club shipment shows up or they open a bottle of wine, they can remember back when they visited and, and shared that experience of, of, in our case, being at Sundance Ranch which is, mm-hmm. of course, drinking wine and then having all the horses around you. Well, you know, let's talk about the horses, because uh, you and your wife, Jennifer, who's your co-proprietor, you race a lot. Talk a little bit about your love for horses and what you do in the horse rescue world. So uh, two facets of that. Um, let me talk about the horse rescue, uh, because I think uh-huh. that's uh, really yes. kind of fun. Um, about a, uh, two years ago, uh, a, a major fire occurred just north of us, people may remember, it's one of the most severe fires that ever occurred in California. Uh, product of that, uh, we became a home to a number of lost horses because of, of the ranches that got burned out. Um, mm-hmm. We developed a relationship through that through an organization called Sunrise Horse Rescue. And mm-hmm. it's an organization in Napa, it's a volunteer organization. And through that relationship, uh, about six months after the fire, they lost their lease uh, to where uh, they were uh, uh, had the homes for horses, and so we offered a good size of our property for that. So today we are the home of the Sunrise Horse Rescue, and at any point in time there's between 20 and 30 horses that are on property that are in some state of rescue or sanctuary. Um, certainly uh, the, pro- the promise of these horses is that we get them back to health because we've, mm-hmm. we've gotten them for all kinds of reasons, and then we rehome them to a, a, a family that uh, will take care of those horses. So it's a real fun project. It's run by an army of volunteers. It's just beautiful. 70, 80 people out of Napa Valley take care of these animals uh, day in and day out. It's a fascinating thing to watch. So that's the Sunrise Horse Rescue that's on property. Now, mm-hmm. our interest in horses uh, stems back from even before we got into the wine business. Um, uh, my wife and I do a sport called, as you noted, it, uh, endurance horse racing, which is essentially 50 to 100-mile single-day races on one horse over cross-country. And uh, we only use Arabians for this. Uh, Arabians are kind of built for this. Uh, they've been roaming the planet for so many thousands of years, and uh, they have characteristics in their body that can do this uh, versus other breeds like thoroughbreds and quarter horses. Uh, Jennifer and I we race about six to eight times a year. Uh, we've actually raced all over the planet. Uh, we just finished a race this weekend near just north of Santa Barbara, where we did a couple days mm-hmm. of 50 mile races. Um, it's a great sport. Uh, I tell you, it's one that um, you only succeed if you understand the word partnership because it's not about you. It's about you and the horse. And it's your job to take care of that horse throughout the entire race so that you can finish in good shape. Um, the one thing about Jennifer and I, we both race and uh, we race when we go to a race, we race together the entire race. And I only have one speed of core at the end of the race. And that is when the finish line is in front of us, I have to think about who gets to go first. And my esprit de corps is I'm either second or I'm single. And I, uh, I, I like that. That works for me and my family. So, uh, it, it keeps the marriage happy. It does. I think that's I'm, good, I'm perfectly yeah. fine with that. Absolutely. I, so I, think if, many... I think if Melanie and I ever took up that sport, I'd probably be in your shoes. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> How many Arabians do you have, Barry? Uh, we have seven Arabians. Um, one is retired. I just retired an 18-year-old who had been racing for about uh, 12 years. Uh, I'm now racing uh, a six-year-old. His name is De La Cruz. Uh, we have a new one coming up uh, for me. Um, his name is True South. He's a four-year-old. Uh, well, he's we, just learning to be a horse right now. 
And we um, met and we met True South while we were at the yeah, at, we did. At, at the ranch last yeah. week, and he's a cutie. We actually, actually for those listeners who uh, also follow us on Instagram, you can find a picture of Barry and True South, True South on on our on our page. Uh, and yeah, he's, he's, he's just, just a baby, an adorable house. Yeah, he's a baby, yeah, he's really cute. Seems uh, like but the, he's got great promise. Yeah, so seemed like the wine to too. Really, really sweet. Well, I think we think it's just great that you know um, you are rescuing horses, and you know this show has also been about conservation and conserving the land and repurposing. And both you and Julie Johnson are very committed to that in all areas, which we just think is really fabulous. And also, you both. What's interesting about both of you is you had second careers in wine and are doing very well with it. Now, in in the little bit of time we have left, Barry, um, how can people come visit you? I, we know you have a tasting room open. It's by appointment, correct? It is by appointment. Um, we uh, certainly encourage people to call ahead. Uh, and uh, but uh, we we do private appointments for everybody that comes in. We're in the very north side of Napa Valley uh, on mm-hmm. Tubbs Lane north mm-hmm. of the city of Calistoga. Uh, um, so you can go to our website. Uh, you can call us. Um, uh, we take reservations any way we can from two people on up. Um, mm-hmm. We also host for lunches and things of that nature if people are interested in uh, spending more time with us at the ranch. And for those, uh, the website is www.tam, as in Mary, B-E-R-B-E-Y.com, tamberbay.com. Barry, it's been really great. It was great to sit out on the porch, out you know, looking at the stables, t- uh, talking and learning your story and tasting wines last week. And we're really glad you could join us today and uh, the Connected Table Live. Melanie, David, thank you very much. It was uh, enjoyable having you there. Uh, I'd love to talk to your audience. And I uh, look forward to seeing you and everybody up at uh, Tampa Bay. Well, we look forward to coming out and visiting you again because it was too short, and I know we, I know there's more wine to try. So uh, we, we look forward we look forward to getting we look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Gotta have that and, uh, Spending more time on your spending more time in your garden and on your ranch. So we, very we very will do that. So much, folks. You've been listening to the Connected Table Live with Melanie Young and David Ransom. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We always have something to say. Until then, stay insatiably curious. Yes, and, uh, and um, enjoy your week. We'll be back next week with another great show. Uh-huh.